Hello, it's Adam from the Tudor Chest here. If you're enjoying my podcast episodes, then perhaps you would consider becoming an official patron of the Tudor Chest via my Patreon account. I release a weekly bonus subscriber-only episode and have just launched a new Patreon-exclusive series, Historian Unwrapped, a bi-weekly show where I speak to some of the best historians working today about their lives as historians. What are their Tudor opinions? What are their dream Tudor dinner party guests? Which Tudor do they think is the most overrated? And so on. To sign up from just £5 a month, head to patreon.com forward slash the Tudor chest. Dr. Heather Darcy is an American attorney and historian who specialises in German medieval and Tudor history. She has written extensively on the subject and has released two books, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister, and Children of the House of Cleves, Anna and Her Siblings. She joins me today for a fascinating discussion about the Cleves family, including, of course, its most famous member, Anna, the fourth wife of Henry VIII, known to history as the Ugly Flanders Mare. Or was she? Heather's incredible research has led her to many significant conclusions which entirely rewrite the accepted reasons for the breakdown in the marriage between Henry VIII and Anna of Cleves. She is even firmly of the belief that their marriage was fully consummated and that ultimately the one person who is to blame for the breakdown of the couple's relationship was neither party but Anna's brother, Duke Wilhelm of Ulicleve-Berg. Thanks to musicals like Six, Anna is being increasingly viewed as the lucky wife of Henry VIII, a badass who lived out her days in luxury, doing as she pleased. But sadly, Heather tells a very different tale of Anna's later life. We also explore the lives of Anna's two sisters, Sibylla and Amalia, the latter of whom even found herself the subject of a potential lesbian love affair. Prepare to rethink everything you thought you knew about this fascinating family. Tudor Chess Podcast, Episode 26, Anna and the House of Cleves, with Dr. Heather Darcy. Welcome to the Tudor Chess Podcast, Dr. Heather Darcy. It's a real thrill to have you come on to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. So if you wouldn't mind, could you just provide us with a bit of an intro into your background, where you grew up and what you do full time? Yes. So I'm originally from New Jersey and then we moved to Illinois when I was probably about six or seven years old. And as a result, I have an interesting American accent from time to time. I have aspects of, of both Midwest and um, kind of a Staten Island twang, I suppose. And I have a Juris Doctorate, which is the law degree that American attorneys must obtain in order to take the bar exam and become practicing attorneys. So I don't have a PhD. I do have 
most of a master's degree in early modern history with a secondary focus in medieval history completed. And my bachelor's degree is in German. I've been or I've taken at university German classes, of course, French classes, courses in Spanish, and then I've independently studied Latin and a couple other languages. What sparked your interest in history? So it sounds like your uh, your day to day is that you're an attorney. Yes. So what started the, your your passion for history, and is the stuff that you do from a historical perspective your hobby essentially? What sparked my interest was I grew up with a father who was very very into the American Civil War history. So that took place in the mid to late 19th century. And also the his the World War One and World War Two history, and before I was really introduced to the Tudors, I asked my dad, whom I assumed knew everything about history, because he he had a bachelor's degree in history. Hey, Dad, do you know what the Wars of the Roses were? And he said no. And I said, okay, I'm going to read a book about it. And I suppose that's what got me started. And then. There's that familiar gateway drug of the TV show, The Tudors. So that was the next introduction. And then I started reading about Henry VIII and the Six Wives. And I kept reading about Anna of Cleves. And I didn't think that her story made much sense. And that's what kicked off everything. I don't know if it's fair to call history a hobby anymore because I do spend a lot of time working on books. I do have a website, mainsandmanuscripts.com, and I update that periodically, but I, I do spend quite a bit of time outside my day-to-day -day attorney job working on the history aspect of things. So you actually came to history then via the Plantagenets rather than via the Tudors, which is... yes is slightly unusual. People tend to, I find, they land at the Tudors and then they go either backwards or forwards. But sounds like you sort of uh, went slightly against the grain and, and started with the Plantagenets, which is, is interesting. And I actually think they are just as fascinating as the Tudors. And I always encourage people to spend more time getting to know the Plantagenets because I think they are just as fascinating as, as what came after. So if you could pick a single moment from history to go back in time and witness, you can literally see it happening, what would it be? I'd want to see probably Elizabeth I's coronation. I don't have a particular reason other than I think she's my favorite queen and I none of them were perfect, but she seemed to carry it off more successfully than her sister and her cousins. And I think it was a monumentous time in English history. And I would want to see what echoes from the past we still have in the current coronation ceremony that, of course, we all had the chance to observe in May of 2023. Do you have, I suppose, what we could call a controversial Tudor opinion? I am not a massive fan of Anne Boleyn, Ooh. which I know might break your heart, if only because, well, <laughs> I feel like she's been made too divisive and it's very difficult to get at who the real person was because she wasn't perfect but she also wasn't tremendously flawed. And I think that sometimes when we're looking at historical figures, they almost lose their sense of humanity yeah. because we want to pick a side. And so I suppose it's not Anne Boleyn herself or her history itself. It's more so how divided people can be when looking at what happened in her life and the agency she did and didn't have in her life. Do you have a, a Tudor misconception that you would love to be able to change? If you could change one thing that you see repeated over and over and over again, what would you like to be able to change? Well, if I have to pick one, it's that Anna of Cleves was ugly. 
Uh, and I say that because my fabulous mother-in-law, who if you're listening, you're the very best mother-in-law anyone could ever wish to have. She came to my house a couple of weeks ago and she has very, uh, she's read my both of my books that are out now and she asks me questions all the time and she's very, very engaged with my work, which is really, really wonderful to have a supportive family member like that. But she saw an item that I had or an image of Anna Cleves and she said, oh, she looks cute there. And Anna was never called ugly until the 17th century when this idea of the Flanders mare came about. And Henry never actually called her unattractive or ugly. He said he wasn't attracted to her so that he had a basis for his legal annulment instead of having to get a divorce. So he said he wasn't attracted to her to explain why he was unable or did not consummate the marriage. P.S. They they consummated it. You can read more about that in Children of the House of Cleves. They did consummate it, but that's that's something that, aside from some other concerns about Anna, that is the one thing I wish people would just look at the images of her use the evidence of their eyes and realize that, and and also the written evidence where he never called her unattractive. He just said he wasn't attracted to her. The irony is that Jane Seymour, who I think we can say based on her portraits, was not a particularly attractive woman. Anna, you can tell from her portraits, was not an unattractive woman. So the irony that there's this, the ugly wife is is the woman that, that came after who it, the, the woman who is arguably the, the plainest of Henry VIII's wives, I think, is, is something that people really overlook. And if we if we look at images of her, there's a lot of images of her older sister, Zabilla, who is regarded as one of the most beautiful women in the Holy Roman Empire. We have several images of Anna. We, we have one image of Amalia as an adult, but we don't know for sure that it's her. There's a, a picture of it in my second book, Children of the House of Cleves. It comes from a fashion book that was created in the 16th century. There's an image of two women and a man showing the the fashions of Ulrich Kleifeberg, Juliers, Clevesburg, where they're from. And it looks a heck of a lot like it was inspired by Anna, her sister Amalia, and their brother Wilhelm. And if we look at Wilhelm, he's a pretty attractive guy too. I understand that portraiture was very forgiving during the time period, but it seems unlikely. Also, their mother was beautiful too. It seems unlikely that you have a woman who's regarded as the most attractive or one of the most attractive in the Holy Roman Empire, a brother that's not bad looking, another sister that, if that is an image of her, looks all right, and then the horribly ugly sister. I just don't see how how you could have three beautiful people and one really, really ugly person because I just feel like that's not how genetics work. But I, I could always be wrong. I'm not a geneticist and I don't specialize in looking at people's faces, I guess, so... I suppose the only thing that does immediately spring to mind is the Grey sisters, because although there's no 100% confirmed portrait of Jane Grey, according to the record, she was relatively good looking. Her sister Catherine was described as very beautiful, but Mary, the youngest, was described as the ugliest woman in England. So I suppose... Really? It, yeah. And she was, I mean, bless her, she she was described as the shortest person at court. Um, she was described as, as genuinely really unattractive. And the portrait of her kind of holds that theory up but who knows who knows so on to the subject of anna and and the house of cleves firstly could you introduce us to the cleves family i think anyone who's got an interest in the tudors is going to be aware of the most famous member of course anna but what of her two sisters you mentioned her sisters a moment ago and her brother her parents who were they what were their 
what were their identities what did they do what what were their lives like at the point that Anna I suppose comes to England Within Germany the most famous members of Anna's family are her brother Wilhelm and her older sister Zabilla but I'll start talking with talking about Anna's parents so there was Johann of Cleves Mark he was the third duke Johann of Cleves Mark and Mark was a county and not a duchy and then her mother was the hereditary princess or hereditary duchess of Julich or Juliers in English and Berg or Berg in English. And she had no legitimate brother. She had an illegitimate half brother that we know about, but no legitimate brothers. And within the Holy Roman Empire, if you married a hereditary heiress or duchess or whatever legal title of a family, then you became the ruler of that territory upon the death of the male member of the family by right of being married to the wife. So Johann and Maria are married in, I think it was around 1510. And then by, I think it was 1513, Maria's father passes away. So then Johann becomes the titular Duke of Eulichenberg. He's not the Duke of Clevesmark yet because his father's still alive. And then in 1521, when his father died, Anna's grandfather, he becomes the Duke of Clevesmark and Eulichenberg. And then he eventually winds up unifying them. So they become the the united duchies of Eulichenberg the United Duchies of Juliers, Cleves, and Berg. And at the time of the births of all of his children, he, with the exception of Zabilla, he was the titular Duke of Eulichenberg, but he wanted to have all of his children to be known as being of Cleves. And their actual last name is Fondemark or Vondermark, if you say it without the accent. So much like how Henry VIII was Henry Tudor, or outside of England, let's use uh, Queen Mary I. So she would have been known as Mary of England, outside of England, but her last name was Tudor. So same same kind of idea. Zabilla was the oldest of the children, which I mentioned. She was born in 1512. And in 1527, she went to Saxony to marry the heir to the electoral territory of Saxony, which then, of course, she became the electress, even though that word doesn't really exist in German, but she became the electress of Saxony uh, when her father-in-law passed away. That family is famous for protecting Martin Luther and also helping to advance the Lutheran Reformation. And we're going to jump ahead just a little bit. It was because Anna's brother-in-law was the elector of Saxony that Thomas Cromwell wanted Henry to marry Anna so that he could then get a foothold into the power of Saxony and have their support. So Zabilla got married or was married when she was 15 years old and kind of shipped off and out of the picture. And then um, Anna was born in June of 1515. Her brother came along in July of 1516 and the younger sister, Amalia. We don't know exactly when she was born. It seems she was probably born in November of 1517. There are some records that say October of 1517, but we'll call it autumn of 1517. All of the children would have spent the first several years of their lives in what's called the Fallenzimmer, which literally means the ladies' room. It can also be a term for the women's shadow courts. You would have the primary court, the male court, and then you'd have a women's shadow court where the most of the officers were female. And boys would stay in there until they were about seven years old, and then they would be removed to be put through whatever type of schooling or training they were supposed to have for their station in life. And no one was allowed to be in the room's the Fallensima passed the age of 12 except for doctors, and no one was allowed to be in there after a certain time at night 
unless there was a medical emergency and it was physicians or doctors. That being said, it wasn't a super restrictive environment. It's just very different from how England did things. But Anna would have learned how to read, how to write. And we have to remember that reading and writing were two very, very separate skills. I think we put them together as being the same skill now, but that's only really happened since about the 17th century that they're taught together. So it wasn't uncommon for people to know how to read, but it wasn't as common for people to know how to write. Uh, So she would have learned things like how to play games. It's likely she knew how to play chess. We know that her elder sister, Zabilla, knew how to play chess by the time she went to Saxony. So there's there's no direct evidence that Anna knew how to play, but there's also no reason to think she didn't. She appeared to enjoy card games. We can look to the fact that she was interested in learning a card game that Henry enjoyed when she was spending time in Calais before making the crossing to go to England. She would have learned to embroider and engage in other type of needlework. She would have learned how to administer a household. She would have learned how to cook, interestingly enough, which is something that she did hold on to after she after her marriage was ended in England. So there were a lot of practical skills that she would have learned. She would not have learned languages She might have picked something up here and there. She might have understood Latin from going to mass, but she wouldn't have directly been taught any languages. Music wasn't something that was taught to young ladies in Germany either. What made you decide to focus on the Cleese family? They're not a a family that are especially well-trodden. So what, what was it that drew you to their story? I think that was part of it. The initial... What caused the initial overture, and this is not any stroke of brilliance whatsoever, but as we've discussed, I'm a German speaker. I majored in German. I kept reading books about Henry VIII and the wives, and she kept being referred to as Anne. And of course, I'm an American, and it didn't quite dawn on me at the time that when women moved to foreign countries, their names were changed to fit with that country. So another great example is Catherine of Aragon was Catalina. And so I'm looking at that. I'm like, there's no way her name was Anne. I'm, you know, I feel and I feel like she was 24. She moved to England. That was kind of old for that time period. There has to be more to her and her life in Germany than some chick named Anne that got shipped off to to England. And also everything I'd read up to that point, and this is over a decade ago, had said that it was just this tiny little insignificant territory in Germany. So I sat down and I wrote a letter to the mayor of Cleves in German and explaining who I am and what my purpose was. And then I got an email back from his support staff and they had forwarded my letter to some local archives. And it just kind of went from there. And the more and more I read about the family and about the politics, it became very apparent that the United Duchies of Jülich Krefeberg were extremely significant within the Holy Roman Empire. And that was something that continued up until the duchies fell apart in 1609 when Anna's nephew, the heir, passed away without any heirs of his own. And that really changed the context of Anna's marriage and also some of the other things that the that her siblings and nieces and nephews experienced. So a f- couple of things on that. So with regard to her name, she is known to history as Anne of Cleves. We we regularly call her Anne of Cleves. You make a point of calling her Anna. So, you know, I assume based on the amount of research you've done and, and the fact that you call her Anna, that she was called Anna. Did that change when she came to England? And did she become Anne? Or was she Anna throughout her life? And for whatever reason, it just got shifted over time later on? Or is it too difficult to say? From what I can tell, it depends on to whom she was writing. So if we look at her records of or like her inventories, she signs as 
I think she signed as Anne the Queen, but she definitely signed as Anne. And she made her capital letter A very differently than she did when she signed documents as Anna. And it's kind of funny because with or to me, it's funny because with one of the inventories I looked at, she started to sign the A for Anne with the A that she originally used when she would sign Anna in Germany. But there's letters from her to her brother after Henry VIII passed away where she signs as Anna. And then I believe there is a prayer book in the collection of the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C., where she signs as Anne. So it's somewhat just dependent on her audience from what I could tell. The legal documents that she signed to marry Henry, she signs as Anna. The literal translation is Anna, the born Duchess of Juliers, Cleves and Berg, but the better translation for our purposes is hereditary instead of the born. So Gubona is like the past tense of to be born of. One of the other things that I think people can be a little confused about is Cleves. You know, you mentioned a moment ago that it was this very significant corner of the Holy Roman Empire. So can you tell us about the Duchy of Cleves? What actually was it? I think we we tend to assume that it was just part of Germany, but based on what you're saying, that it was more complex than that. Modern day Cleves and the territories over which Anna's family ruled are predominantly within the boundary of North Rhine-Westphalia in Western Central Germany. When you look at a map from the 16th century, the territory that her family ruled over is smack in the middle of the Holy Roman Empire and is approximately halfway between the Habsburg Netherlands and between Vienna in Austria. And so in theory, and her brother attempted to do this, if they controlled all that territory, including the Duchy of Gelders, which is mostly in the modern day Netherlands, but a chunk of it is across the Rhine from what used to be the the United Duchies of Jülich-Kleifeberg, they could put a chokehold on any movement of the military or goods in within the Holy Roman Empire. And also the territory overall was extremely wealthy. So It just it had a lot of things going for it. Uh, Part of the reason why Anna's elder sister, Zabilla, married the elector of Saxony was because they wanted to try and extinguish any claim or any non-hereditary claim that Saxony had on Juliers, on Julich. And so the best way to do that was through marriage. And it was because that family, Anna's family, didn't want to completely lose control of that territory because it was so strong. What's also interesting for both Anna and Zabilla, her older sister, and again, I go into this in Children of the House of Cleves, is they both married up. And it was very common in German society at the time for the women to marry a step or two down rather than marrying up. So they both married up. Their brother married up twice because he married a Habsburg prince. Well, first he married a French princess. That didn't go well. Then he married a Habsburg archduchess, and then he married another important important princess from the Duchy of Lorraine, but she was a cousin to the Habsburgs. So he, so the all three siblings that were able to get married all married up, which is a little, which is definitely rare within the Holy Roman Empire during that time period. So by extension of that, I think one of the other things that we think of when we when we think about Anna. We think of her as royalty. We think of her as a German princess. So placing her side by side with Catherine of Aragon, the Spanish princess. Is this misguided though? You know, was she known as Princess Anna in her homeland? Or were the Cleves family essentially just an incredibly noble and very powerful family? Or were they actual royalty? So 
it wouldn't surprise me if she had been called Princess Anna at some point. There's not a record that I've seen where she's specifically referred to as that. But her first sister-in-law, Jean d'Albray, became upset that she married a petty German prince. It would only be a German princess instead of being a queen in, in France or in Navarre. So there were princes and princesses, but it's I don't believe it has the same direct connotation as what we think of when we think of English royalty. So within Germany, this is a very fast and loose explanation of their nobility system. So forgive me if I'm leaving out a couple steps, but you have the imperial family and then you have archdukes and archduchesses. But beneath that, you have the electors and some of them were called prince electors. Some of them were bishop electors. Some of them were prince bishops. And then under that, you have your dukes and duchesses and kind of going down the line, it mirrors what we have in England and I believe also in France. So. I think that she could be regarded as almost a hybrid of of extremely high nobility slash royalty, but I don't know that she could be properly slotted into either category just because the system is so different. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that does. It's it's definitely a grey area, and I think that that was how I've always thought of her. We naturally conclude that to be a prince or a princess, you're parent needs to be a reigning monarch and that wasn't the case for Anna but then she is viewed as you know one of the reasons I, that again that maybe this is a big misconception but one of the big reasons why that one of the big reasons we believe Henry VIII ultimately treated her very well was because she is viewed as a foreign princess and that in in some respects gave her a measure of protection that English brides wouldn't and didn't enjoy Oh, absolutely. I think that I one of my pet peeves is when people say Anna was lucky she kept her head. Well, she was never in danger of losing her head, unlike one of Henry's English wives, specifically for what for the reasons that you're putting forth, because if Henry would have chosen to behead Anna, that would have started an international war. I also think that just touching a little bit on reasons why Henry might have treated Anna so well after the annulment was not just that she acquiesced, but also I wonder if he thought back to what happened to Catherine of Aragon when after his brother Arthur died, who was, of course, her first husband, and she was just left absolutely destitute and treated very poorly by Henry's father and also by her own father. And so given that the annulment had nothing to do with Anna and had everything to do with her brother being a twit and Anna was effectively trapped in England because of what her brother was doing. I have to wonder if Henry took pity on her and recalling what happened to Catherine of Aragon, wanted to make sure that she was well-maintained to the to her level of dignity that she could have expected back in Germany. Well, again, we tend to just look at the separation and go, Anne was very willing to sort of call a day on the marriage and therefore Henry gave her everything within reason. Based on what you've just said a moment ago, there, there is sort of much more to it than that, and that her brother played a huge role in what caused the breakdown. Oh, absolutely. So I, I'd like to get a little bit into the politics and what the original intention was of Cromwell and then how Anna's brother messed it up, if I may. So I mentioned this earlier, but what appears to be the situation is Anna's brother-in-law, who was married to her elder sister, Zabilla, was Johann Friedrich, Elector of Saxony. He was one of the co-founders of the Protestant or Schmalkaldic League, which was a defensive league against the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. So we have to remember, too, when we're looking at this time period specifically within the Holy Roman Empire, if you're pro-Catholic, you're pro-Emperor. If you're pro-Lutheranism, you are anti-Emperor. 
And so they had established this league and they were accepting different members. Well, here comes Henry trying, Henry via Cromwell, trying to get into this defensive league against the Holy Roman Emperor. But the issue was he was a reformist. That is a di very different from Protestantism and from Lutheranism. So reformist is, is even more Catholic light than Lutheranism. Um, and I'm not trying to insult the Lutherans, but there are still a lot of similarities between Lutheranism and Catholicism today. But being a reform a reformist was not the same as being a Protestant. And there were some different things that were passed in England having to do with religion that Anna's brother-in-law, Johann Friedrich, just did not like. And so... Cromwell didn't firmly have an understanding of the politics within Saxony. And after the marriage negotiations were completed, it was there was a bar put on adding any new members to the Schmalkaldic League until at least 1541. So Henry was already excluded by the time he and Anna signed the paperwork for this marriage to happen. Additionally, and I go over this in quite a bit of detail in my first book, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, the Holy Roman Emperor's wife passed away in May of 1539, and this was only a couple months after Anna's father died, making her, I believe, 22-year-old brother the ruler of this expansive, wealthy, powerful territory. And so he hurried up, and and by he, I mean her brother Wilhelm, hurried up and negotiated this marriage with Cromwell while the emperor was completely removed from society, mourning the death of his wife. So by the time the emperor comes out, I don't think he really liked what was happening, but he preferred not to make an enemy of Wilhelm or Henry VIII. So ultimately, as we move through things, we see that even as early as January 1540, shortly after Anna arrived in England, it was becoming too dangerous for people from Cleves to travel across imperial territory, which, of course, you must do to get from England to the United Duchies. And so several of her train that accompanied her went back to Cleves already. And that was because her brother had received from the Duke of Gelders the entire Duchy of Gelders when that guy died, even though Charles V had something like five different legal claims to the Duchy of Gelders, which kind of was the last puzzle piece to really, really make Julius Schaeferberg insanely powerful. And so in addition to that, Wilhelm then went behind Henry's back negotiate with Francis I to marry Francis I's niece without telling Henry any of this. Because what Wilhelm wanted to do was have a war with the emperor and have the might of England, France, and Saxony against the emperor. And I think that had that worked out, history would have turned out quite a bit differently. But Henry didn't want to mess with it. And so he had the marriage annulled. And then, of course, we later see the Cleves War does begin in late 1542 because Catherine Howard, of course, her indiscretions are discovered. She meets her terrible downfall in the background. Anna and her brother Wilhelm are like, yeah, we're going to we're going to get Henry to take back Anna. And we know that the Cleves War is coming. So then Henry will join against the emperor and help defend the United Duchies against the emperor. Well, instead, Henry makes a secret pact with the emperor and then marries Catherine Parr so that he never has to formally declare for or against Cleves. And then the Cleves War breaks out. It's a big mess. Wilhelm is defeated. A few years later, in 1547, there's the, the first set of Schmalkaldic Wars. Anna's brother-in-law and older sister are defeated by the emperor. So I hope I've done a good enough job of condensing a lot of really... Uh, of just a, a large volume of political machinations that were happening as a result of Anna's brother and 
what was going on with the emperor. But that is the overview of why Henry had the marriage annulled. And also, I believe the reason why he wound up marrying Catherine Parr. So ultimately, the the accepted reason for the breakdown of the marriage that is, is so well-trodden and, and constantly put out there is nonsense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, because it, we have to look at who is writing these documents and why. And the records of Henry and Anna not getting along, that doesn't crop up until the secret, there's these secretive meetings for people who are putting together the paperwork for the annulment. So that doesn't crop up till late June. And the document written and signed by Cromwell, he wrote and signed when he was in the Tower of London shortly after the original document that was drafted in June of 1540 was brought to him. And he was trying to not have his head cut off. So the things that we've relied upon for so long about why the marriage broke down were written for Henry and by his council members to try and get an annulment instead of a divorce, because even today, those are extremely different things. And he wasn't going to put down on a piece of paper, well, Anna's brother is a twit and I don't trust him. I can't be married to this lady anymore. I'm just going to get out of it. One of the things that you touched on a moment ago is the the rise of Protestantism. And and again, I think a a misconception about the the Cleves family and Anna Anna in particular is that they were Protestants and that that was why they were such a suitable match in Cromwell's eyes. But I believe that actually, when we look at the facts that Anna and her immediate family were actually much more conservative in their religion than is often perceived. Would you say that was correct? Yes. So her mother was very strictly Catholic. Her father was also Catholic. They adopted via media within the United Duchies in as far as dealing with Lutheranism and the spread of Lutheranism went. You weren't necessarily penalized for being a Lutheran, but you weren't allowed to spread the Lutheran doctrine or to disseminate Lutheran pamphlets. There was a large number of people who went from Jülich to go to Wittenberg and Saxony to learn about Lutheranism and then came back. So it was definitely present within the United Duchies. Anna's family did not take a harsh stance against it, but they were not pro-Lutheran at all. Anna, as far as we can tell, was Catholic. Her brother, Wilhelm, he had to be Catholic and he there's not really a sign that he wasn't Catholic until maybe the 1550s or so, where sometimes he would take communion in both the Catholic form and the Lutheran form. And so he just kind of vacillated back and forth. But after he was defeated in the Cleves War and was then permanently under the thumb of the Holy Roman Imperial family, he had to be Catholic and his sons had to be Catholic. We do know that Zabilla of Cleves was a very devoted Lutheran because her husband was Johann Friedrich, the elector of Cleves. So she absolutely was Lutheran. And she managed to convert the younger sister, Amalia, to Lutheranism. And Amalia stayed in the United Duchy. She never married, but she was a constant thorn in Wilhelm's side to the point where he almost killed her once over her Lutheranism. And or at least he went after her with a sword. And she refused to attend the funeral of her sister-in-law through Wilhelm because it was a Catholic service. So she's a true convert then. (laughs) Yes. Well, and I think she just might have been a little more sassy than she needed to be. (laughs) Um, But she did. She did manage to convert some of Wilhelm's daughters to Lutheranism, although his sons had to remain Catholics. So if I had to pick a religion 
overall, I'd say that they were a Catholic family, but for Zabilla and Amalia. So one of the the big parts of Anna's story is the 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 rumors, the suggestions that she was ugly, that she was the Flanders mare, that famous nickname, that she smelt bad. You know, that Henry VIII was ultimately horrified by her. You and I know this is all nonsense, but it had to start somewhere. So what were the origins for these stories about Anna? And is there any truth in any of them, as, as best as you can tell? I'm assuming there's not any truth in them because of the reason for which those records were created. And again, they were created at around the time of the annulment proceedings because there was a secret council that was appointed to specifically sort out how to achieve an annulment for Henry so that he could be free from his obligations to the United Duchies. And these reasons that he gave that her belly and her breasts were loose, like she was someone else's wife and that she smelled bad and that he wasn't attracted to her, again, were ways for him to say that he never consummated the marriage with her, which is simply not true. And also when it comes to him saying that he still had nocturnal emissions to prove his virility so that he could go on and and marry again, who knows if that happened or not. But that's why he presented that evidence. And he also said that Anna was legally contracted to Francis of Lorraine, the Duke of Lorraine's son. And that was something that had been true until 1535 when the whole engagement had been called off because Anna's father had failed to fulfill the terms of the pre-contracted marriage. So she had been free to marry for at least or approximately four years by the time Henry thought he should marry her. I also suspect when you look at the coat of arms for, I believe it's Berg and for Flanders, they're extremely similar. They're both black lions on a yellow field. And so I wonder if whoever first coined the term in the 17th century thought that when they were looking at the coat of arms, that it was the arms of Flanders, because Anna is absolutely not from Flanders. No one would make that mistake back then. She was certainly not from Flanders. So I think that's also part of what led to it. But most of the information we have, like I said, when you when you really look at the records, Anna and Henry got along great. It was fine. He got a little annoyed on their wedding day because she was kind of late getting ready. If we turn to the German records about their first meeting, the whole thing with Henry showing up and being displeased by her appearance is completely bogus. There's no contemporary proof of it. Even if the truth is somewhere in the middle between the German account of Henry showing up, he did surprise her, but I'm assuming there weren't too many tall gentlemen in their late 40s that had big red beards that weren't the King of England that would have come to see Anne of Cleves. So she probably sorted it out fairly quick, but we know that he dined with her, that he stayed not too far from her overnight in Rochester and had breakfast with her the next morning. And then later on, uh, they had their formal meeting at the park outside of Greenwich Palace. But even if he wasn't completely pleased with her, that doesn't explain either the motivation of the German writing back to Anna's brother and mother about, oh yeah, he stayed and had dinner with her and it was fine. Then they had breakfast the next day and it was fine. Why he wouldn't have mentioned these bad things immediately. So, and again, the the whole story about the furs, that doesn't come up until the annulment proceedings. So when you really look at the timing of the records and the appearances that we have of Anna wearing French dress, going to different, I think she went to um, jousts around the Easter holiday and they looked happy. There was a time where... The ambassador from Cleves thought that Anna was pregnant. 
we have no reason to believe the English account with the benefit of hindsight being 2020 when you actually look at what was recorded and also the motives for recording some of those items. You've mentioned a couple of times that the marriage was absolutely, to your belief, consummated, which is a real, that's a big shift from, again, the accepted belief. What did you discover that leads you to be convinced that they did consummate the marriage? In Carl Harst, the ambassador from Cleves, in his letters back home, when the annulment proceedings started, he mentions that Anna would rather, she swore up and down that they had consummated the marriage and that she'd rather lose her head than have to swear differently that they had not consummated the marriage. Also, he's the one who thought that she might have been pregnant. And so I think that that's sufficient evidence. When we look at the women who were called upon to give testimony that Anna knew nothing about the marital act, if she did, if Anna did in fact say what she said about, you know, the king kisses me, good night and kisses me, good morning, isn't that enough? Well, we have to look at the context of who's asking her, making these comments to her about, hey, are you sleeping with your husband? It was someone who was much lower than her in rank. And so even if Anna did say something like that, maybe she was insulted by this woman talking to her that way. Also, I think there's a misconception that Anna was extremely sheltered within the Fallen Sima, which we were talking about earlier as being the women's shadow court and also a set of rooms that were adjacent to the main court. She would have been around pregnant women within the Fallen Sima. And so... I find it extremely hard to believe that she made it to the age of 24, knowing that she was going to grow up and be a wife, Mm. being around pregnant women and everything that all the dangers and excitement that pregnancy and childbirth or loss of a child brings with it and had no idea what her job, what her main duty was or how to engage in that or what the result of being with your husband would be. That just seems particularly extraordinary to me. And I'm not sure why. In the many examples of history we have of queens, or excuse me, many examples of queens we have throughout history, not that 100% of them knew what was supposed to happen, but I, it seems to me that ma- the majority of them understood what they were supposed to do and had some inkling of how to get there. So I don't know why she would be the exception. Yeah, and you would imagine that, you know, before she leaves Cleves, there's going to be a discussion, you know, about how to ensure that she pleases the king and, and you know why do we assume that that conversation and that knowledge wouldn't have been granted to her well and by the time she left cleves her older sister had had four children we don't have i don't think there's any or at least there's not very many surviving letters between her older sister and anna but we have no reason to think that it was this grand mystery because the older sister figured it out one of the big parts of Anna's story that I think is something that's sort of cropped up in the last few years. And I think a big part of it actually has been influenced by Six. The, we, I mean, I love Six. I think it's an amazing show. Yes. It's brilliant. And actually, I, I really, my favourite songs are the Anna, the Anna of Cleves songs. I think they're just so, so brilliant. Me too. But what Six does, it absolutely paints Anna as the lucky wife who escapes what would have been an awful marriage and lived a life of complete luxury to the end of her days. Now, I know you're yeah. not of the opinion. You're not of that opinion. I believe. No, I so, think so why, what was her life like and where does this misconception come from? So some of this, I think comes back to the idea of looking at Anna as a character and not as a person. So we have to keep that in mind. But when we look at Anna from the German perspective, she was a failure. She 
did not succeed as being the Queen of England. She was abandoned. She was not able to resume her position as the Queen of England. She never married. She had no children. She was unable to do anything to help further the interests of her family. The United Duchies fell because there was a dearth of heirs who were available to inherit it. And depending on what the terms of any type of marital contract could have been for Anna, it's possible that her heirs could have inherited the territory. She she did get the Palace of Richmond, and so she did live very well under Henry VIII. But she didn't stay in England because she felt like it. She stayed in England because her family, her brother and her sister at different times during the 1540s, were engaged in open warfare with the Holy Roman Emperor, and it would have been extremely dangerous for her to go home. And who who would be responsible for her, first of all, paying for it? And secondly, if she were captured, who would be held responsible for that on his family or on or King Henry? So we have to think about that, too. And then her brother did attempt to find her and her sister Amalia husbands in I believe is in around 1548. But because of his politics, wasn't really able to. And also, again, Anna's over in England. After Henry dies, Edward VI has very little use for Anna, tries to take away and succeeds in taking away several of her properties. At one point, he off the cuff mentions, hey, maybe she can marry Thomas Seymour just so he can get her off the the king's uh, treasury or at least not be financially responsible for her anymore. But there really isn't anyone available in England for Anna to marry. So and I think we also, again, there's this misconception that she would have been miserable going back home and being in the Fallensima. And there's nothing to show that. Uh, records from Germany, and, and I'm speaking kind of more of an overarching way, but women enjoyed being in the Fallensima. It, it wasn't this restrictive, horrible environment that, for whatever reason, English speakers believe that it was. It, it was part of her culture, something she would have enjoyed being in. They still socialized with the main court, so it's not like they were shut away like in a an abbey or something like that. And so for Anna, you know, she's impoverished under Edward VI. She has a brief positive reprisal under Mary I, but then because of an implication against her and her brother Wilhelm in the Wyatt Rebellion, she is turned away from court again, and she just kind of lives in obscurity. That's why there's not a ton of records about what she got up to after Henry VIII, because it wasn't a whole lot, and she wasn't incredibly welcomed at court. So I don't think that she was lucky, unless we consider lucky being thrown into poverty and not being able to have your own family. And for some people, maybe that's something that they like, but it, it's really difficult for me to see her as being the lucky one. So you said that there was nobody for her to really to marry in England. What was the actual reason for that? Because is it is it her foreign royal status? Because Catherine Parr married very quickly after the death of Henry VIII. So there was a precedence for dowager queens remarrying, but Anna as best we can tell, chose not to. So do you have a, a particular, do you have a theory on why? Was it purely that her her royal foreign blood is kind of what stopped her? Or was there just, it, it just didn't happen? I think, I think it's a combination of things. I think it would have been quite a bit of hassle to, because she wasn't necessarily free to negotiate her own marriage. So her brother would have to agree to it. He'd also have to, in theory, put up a dowry or they'd have to convince Edward VI or Mary I to put up a dowry for her. So I think Anna was just trapped in a state of limbo for the rest of her life after Henry passed away because she, even though she was 
a denizen of England. She wasn't really a member of the royal family. And she was also so far away from Germany. And depending on what her brother's needs were at the time, I don't want to say he didn't care about her. But when you've got wars and all sorts of other crazy things breaking down your door, you're probably not going to be as worried about your sister who's hundreds of miles away in a foreign country. So also there's the issue of status. So Anna being that hybrid royalty slash nobility from Germany, at what level husband should or what what level should her husband be in England? Should she marry a duke? Should she marry an earl? And she just didn't have sufficient legal or financial independence to make those types of decisions. And I think she did respect her brother because she did write to him and but she was just in the in a very strange situation. That it's, it just seems really sad as well, doesn't it? I suppose. Yeah. In a way. She came yeah. to England. She's viewed as a failure ultimately. And based on what you said, this the the theory that she then because she was she acquiesced to the king's demands, she got this great life. She got rich men. She got Heva. She be- became the king's sister. But actually, all of these things were quite hollow in the end. Yes. And going back to what we talked about earlier in the podcast, if you go to Germany, you don't hear about Anna of Cleves. You hear about her brother, Wilhelm the Rich. You don't hear about Anna. She was she even though she was the first German queen of England, she failed. So she's not a very popular historical figure over there from what I can tell within her own territory, which, as I mentioned, is within modern day North Rhine-Westphalia. If you go to any museums over there related to them, they all have to do with or predominantly focus on her brother. And and because he did achieve a lot of great things. He lived until I believe it was 1592. So he ruled over the United Duchies from 1539 to 1592. So he was able to accomplish a lot of good things. And Anna and her sister both died in their four, her older sister both died in their 40s. But you don't hear anything about Anna because she didn't do anything. As as rude as that sounds to say, and, and I very much respect and, and have enjoyed um, researching Anna and her life, but she didn't do anything meaningful for German history. So she's if it weren't for her marrying an English king, we'd never have heard of her. The final question, her sisters, so Sybil and Amalia, you mentioned that Sybil died in her 40s, but Amalia, I believe, went on to have quite a long life. What, what, but, but she never married, she never had children. So what was Amalia's life like, particularly in her later years? There's very little literature about her. I do write what there or within my book, Children of the House of Cleves, there's as much information as I could find about her. But she stayed predominantly in the castle in Cleves in the Swan Castle and also in the Ducal Palace in Dusseldorf, which was the main palace. She didn't really go anywhere beyond that. She did have a hand in raising her nieces through Wilhelm. She may have written some poetry and she may have also had a, uh, she might have, we can never know these things about people, but there appeared to be some indicia that she had a romantic interest or a romantic relationship with a female cousin. So, yeah, and I I go into that a little bit in my book. Again, there's no declaration of love. We can never know these things for sure, but there is some one is able to draw some conclusion that that she was too close to a female cousin who was later sent away from court for that reason. It doesn't say how, 
or what was going on, if anything, but just that it was an inappropriate relationship. So between that, her being declared too Lutheran to marry and the lack of suitable husbands, her brother's politics, Amalia, I think, was just grew into a sassy crone who didn't have time for anybody's nonsense. That's my best guess. Best educated guess. I did not know that the uh, there was a a lesbian love affair rumor around her. And and I wouldn't even go quite that far to to say that (laughs) because I don't know because it's just this little tiny blip, right? It's not like there's all these logs or something about this happening. But if we read between the lines and if we think about it and if I could go back in time and talk to her, then I'd feel more confident saying that. But there is some interesting stuff surrounding her and that during that part of her life. And the fact that she chose, well, it, whether it was a choice is is again up for debate, but the fact that she didn't marry in an age where marriage was the be all and end all, I suppose is slightly unusual. I don't know. So normally what would have happened to her before the German slash Lutheran Reformation is she probably would have been put in a convent as the youngest daughter, because usually parents would put the older or would have enough money for dowries for the older daughters or the oldest daughter. It's possible that for Anna, if her family had had less money, she would have been put in a convent as well, just being a younger daughter. So usually they tried to marry their oldest daughters and then the last one they would give to God. But there was not a way for that to happen during Amalia's lifetime and while her brother is in charge of Cleves. And so I... we can only speculate about what her life would have been like. I think had she been born even 25 years earlier, she might have been put into into a convent. We, When we think about the dissolution of the monasteries in England, there was something very similar happening in Saxony that slowly spread across Germany, where they were dissolving religious institutions. Some of them continued and some of them were, re- were reestablished as Protestant or Lutheran religious houses. But we just don't know what would have happened to Amalia had she been born 25 years earlier. She probably would have been would have become a nun, though. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. It was a real treat. I'm sure that people are going to really enjoy the episode. So thank you again for coming on. Thank you for having me. And so that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the Tudor Chess Podcast. My thanks again to Heather Darcy for coming onto the show. As I mentioned earlier, I also release a weekly bonus subscriber episode. To access that, just sign up via my Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash the Tudor Chest, or track me down via Apple Podcasts. Thank you again for listening and speak soon. <laughs>